Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. He kōna e purangi te nei na te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Piki mai, kake mai, and a big welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance ho. Tonight we are carrying on with the theme of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Last week we heard from Dave Lowe about the longest running atmospheric CO2 measurements in the Southern Hemisphere. And Niwa's Sarah Mikola Fletcher explained how the Carbon Watch New Zealand project is giving us a bird's eye view of our country's carbon balance. I'm off now to meet another collaborator in the Carbon Watch project, this time for a worm's eye view of carbon, especially in urban areas. Jocelyn Turnbull is at GNS Science, and I meet up with her outside on a large grassy lawn. We want to measure carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which is the main greenhouse gas, and how it's changing. And of course, a lot of the increase or the increases that we see in the atmosphere are driven by the burning of fossil fuels, which is increasing carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. There's a bit of a challenge with that of measuring that because if we just measure carbon dioxide concentrations, there's not only those emissions from fossil fuel burning, but there's also this natural exchange, which is photosynthesis, where plants suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere to grow, and respiration, where we and other animals and also plants um, breathe carbon dioxide back out into the atmosphere. And there's a similar process in the ocean. So if you measure CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere, it can be hard to get at exactly how much is com- coming from fossil fuel burning. So the big thing that we do that's a little bit unique is we measure radiocarbon and carbon dioxide. And that radiocarbon, you might be familiar with it from radiocarbon dating, but basically what the way it works is that fossil fuels are millions and millions of years old, and so all of the radiocarbon, which is a rare isotope of carbon, in the carbon in the fossil fuels has all radioactively decayed away, and there's none left. So when we burn fossil fuels and they go into the atmosphere, they have no radiocarbon, and that decreases the relative amount of radiocarbon in the atmosphere. By measuring that, we can figure out exactly how much of the carbon dioxide comes from fossil fuels. So it's about ratios. It's about ratios. But then the really cool trick is that those plants, when they do photosynthesis and they suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and use it to grow, they faithfully record the amount of radiocarbon that was in the atmospheric carbon dioxide in their leaves and in their wood and so forth. And so we can actually go out and we can just pick some grass from somewhere like this. Ta-da! There's some grass. And we can take it back to our lab and we can measure the radiocarbon content in that grass and figure out how much of the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere at the place and time that this grass grew its, its grass leaves, how much of that came from fossil fuels. So if we do it right here, 
at Genie's, a big grassy area, and we're in Wellington and it's really windy, we won't see much of a fossil fuel signal because we're mostly seeing a clean air background. But if we go somewhere like um, the middle of Wellington City and we go right on the side of the road and take a sample of grass, we'll see lots and lots of fossil fuel carbon dioxide from all the cars driving past. So it's a way for us to quantify how much fossil fuel carbon dioxide is being emitted. That's so simple but very clever. Yeah. And, and I gather you've been getting kids in particular around the country to gather samples for you. We have. So when lockdown happened, and as, as we all know, it was very rushed. It was like suddenly there's two days before lockdown happens. And we have lots of complicated, expensive instruments that we can deploy and systems to collect um, samples of actual air and bring them back to the lab and measure them. But we just couldn't get them deployed right before lockdown happened. And so then we were like, oh, what are we going to do? We're going to miss this really unique opportunity to measure a big change in um, carbon dioxide emissions and the kind of big change that we hope to achieve over the longer term with the Zero Carbon Act. But we're going to miss the opportunity to measure that and to try to understand how it's all working. So we thought about it a bit and we thought, why don't we collect grass samples? And we started off thinking, oh, we'll ask some of our colleagues and friends to do it. And then we had the, the better idea to ask families and kids around the country to get involved. And it was really cool that some people in the media got on board and got it really widely advertised. So we got about 400 people collecting samples for us around the country. From a variety of places, I imagine. Yep. And we tried to ask people to collect if they live near a busy road, to collect near the busy road. Um, some of the people, of course, live in nice clean air regions. And so those ones are really important as well because they give us a what is the clean air like background to compare to. So you got all these grass samples yeah. from these 400 people? Yeah. What happens then? Well, they all arrived, and we'd ask everyone to put them in the freezer so that the grass didn't go mouldy. And so we had a lot of grass in the freezer. We had over a 1,000 samples because people were collecting weekly all through lockdown. So then we had a big job, and we had to go through all the samples and document them all and then dry them all so that we could store them somewhere other than the freezer. And then we can get into the lab and actually see what we do. It's quite a complicated process to measure them. It's going, you can show me. Yeah, okay. So this is the Rafter Radiocarbon Lab. This is the Rafter Radiocarbon Lab, and it's named after Ethel Rafter, who was the first person here in New Zealand who worked on radiocarbon measurements. And his specialty, like ours, was looking at radiocarbon in the atmosphere. And he made his first measurements of radiocarbon and carbon dioxide in the atmosphere in 1954. And those were the first measurements of radiocarbon in the atmosphere made anywhere in the world. And we continue that record till today. We measure um, every couple of weeks here in Wellington. And we have this very long record that shows all this amazing history of what's going on in the atmosphere. I didn't realise we were first in the world. We were. So this is the, the pretreatment lab. So this is where we do the chemical pretreatment. So first we have to dry the grass, and then we pick out a few good strands and get rid of the ones that are dead or look nasty, and we can look under the microscope and see, you know, so that we get nice, good quality grass. We've become quite expert in the quality of grass recently. And then we take a whole strand so that we know that it is the full length of the week of sampling that that grass has grown. And then we do what we call a chemical pretreatment, so we wash it with acid. And that's just to remove stuff that's on the surface of that grass that might not be original to the material. And then we come over to the other side of the lab. This is where we do lots of gas phase chemistry. It's pretty cool stuff. So... It's a glass tube, it's actually quartz, which is the expensive glass. 
and that's for a particular reason. So what we do is we put the grass inside one of these tubes along with some copper oxide and silver wire. And then we stick it on a vacuum line. The, the noise that you hear in here is all our vacuum pumps. And so we suck all the air out of the tube and then we get to have lots of fun with the glassblower's torch. And we actually seal up the end of the tube. And so we have this glass tube or quartz tube with our sample, copper oxide and silver wire. And then we stick it in a furnace for four hours at 900 degrees. And that's why we use quartz, because if we use um, normal Pyrex glass, it will melt at that temperature, which doesn't go well. And what that does is all of the carbon in the grass gets converted to carbon dioxide gas. And we get a few other bits and pieces in with it. So then what we do is we take that sample and put it on one of these vacuum lines. We evacuate all around the outside of the tube. And we crack the tube and release the gas that's inside it. And then we use what we call cryogenic purification to get the carbon dioxide isolated from all the other gases. So basically we freeze the carbon dioxide out into liquid nitrogen. So we have lots of cold things in here and with the liquid nitrogen and hot things with the gas torch. Can I just go backtrack and say what's the point of the copper and the silver wire in there? Why, why are they in there? So the copper oxide has oxygen in it. And so that means that when we burn this at high temperature, it provides oxygen so that the, all the carbon in the sample turns into carbon dioxide gas. If we didn't provide that, we would get soot, which is a little harder to deal with and it's messy. Um, and then the silver wire is to clean up. Do you see all this yellow stuff? There's lots of sulfur in some samples and even in grass, bits of sulfur. And the silver wire cleans up the sulfur and pulls it out of the gas phase. And if we don't do that, then when we get to the next step, the sulphur poisons our reaction, so that's a, a critical part of it. Right, so you're cooking but making sure you've got the purest ingredients. Indeed, very pure. So we, we make very pure carbon dioxide, and we do lots of freezing of that carbon dioxide. We do this cryogenic purification and freeze it out into liquid nitrogen. So you might know that dry ice is actually frozen carbon dioxide gas. So that's what we do every day is make dry ice in very, very small amounts. And our dry ice is very special because each bit of dry ice is made from one particular sample. And once you've got this very special dry ice, then what? Then what? <laughs> then we go to our next step, which is we turn it into graphite. So that's this instrument over here. Which I might have to get you to describe it because it's quite a sight and our listeners can't see it. I will stick a picture on the website. What we have is... 20 separate little things on there so we have four banks of five and on each bank of five they're color coded so we can tell which is which and this is all um, computer controlled so what we do is on the top row you see some bottles that's that dry ice but it's now not frozen anymore it's just inside a bottle and what we'll do is we'll transfer that cryogenically again into the bottom part of the system and freeze that carbon dioxide into a little reactor there and then what we do is we add some hydrogen gas, which is in a tank outside, because you may also know that hydrogen is explosive, so it's not inside. And then we have these furnaces that we put on there and we cook part of that little re reactor at about 550 degrees Celsius. And then on the bottom, the, the no most of the noise you hear is actually the fans on the bottom and they're a little cooling system, a thermoelectric cooler, that cools the other side of this reactor. So we cook half of it and freeze the other half and what we get out of that is that when we react carbon dioxide with hydrogen gas, we make graphite, which is pure carbon, it's pencil lead, and we make water. And anybody who knows anything about chemistry knows that if you want a reaction to go to completion, you've got to remove all the products. So we remove the graphite because it's a solid and it just comes out of the, the gas phase and is out of, the, out of the equation. 
and then we have to remove the water as well and that's what those little coolers are doing is actually freezing the water out so we've frozen out our products and we end up with graphite and because we started with gases and we end up with solids the pressure inside that reactor goes down so we can actually monitor if it's working by following the pressure and then we end up with a little puddle of graphite and then we go down the hall to our accelerator mass spectrometer. Do you want to go down there? There's a lot of things happening to this blade of grass. <laughs> there are indeed. So we want to check out the We do, AMS. yes please. Cool. So we're passing through the very noisy room. Phew, it's nice and quiet. So yeah. tell me what's in the really noisy room. So that is our accelerator mass spectrometer. It sounds technical and it is. This is a um, $4 million machine. And... It is a particle accelerator attached to a mass spectrometer. My name is Albert Sondervan. I will show you a batch of samples that we've prepared in the radiocarbon lab, and it's ready for measurement. So this is just a good old paperwork with <laughs> listing all the samples that we are that are in Which here. Basically, goes grass clippings, grass clippings. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. So. This is a wheel holding 40 samples of graphite that are visible in the tiny holes there. Yeah, so it's the size of your palm if you were hand the wheel. Yes. With dots all around the edge. It's not a wheel for a car or something, no. but it's, it's, a, it's a wheel so that we can, in the iron source, we can expose these samples one by one. And it takes about a day or for high precision, maybe two days, to accumulate all the information that we need to infer the carbon isotope ratios. So what we do is we have a cesium ion source and we fire cesium atoms at that little bit of graphite. And what happens is that that bounces off carbon ions, so that's um, charged particles. And in this case, they're negatively charged, so they've got some extra electrons. And then that whole ion source is at high voltage, and that um, accelerates those particles. Here we're in the particle accelerator part of it. And the really good bit about doing that is that nitrogen, which is most of the atmosphere, has a mass of 14, just the same as the mass of radiocarbon, which is 14. And radiocarbon is very rare, even in these samples. And so if we can't get rid of all the nitrogen in the sample, then we can't ever measure radiocarbon very well, so we have to get rid of the nitrogen. And the good bit about this is that nitrogen doesn't form a negative ion, so it just goes away. Done. (laughs) And then we have our carbon ions going through there, and we go into the accelerator and we go through some magnets that bend the stream of ions, charged atoms, And then they go into our particle accelerator where they get sped up some more. And in the middle of that accelerator, they go through what's called a stripper. And as they pass through the stripper gas, electrons are taken off of these ions and we come out the other side with less electrons and positively charged ions. And that step helps us to break up molecules. You can get molecules, which are several atoms joined together, that can make it through the first part of the process, but they break up during that acceleration and stripping process, and then those go away as well. And then we're just left with, hopefully, a stream of three carbon isotopes, carbon-12, carbon-13, and carbon-14. Carbon-12 and carbon-13 are pretty common, so we measure those using something called a Faraday cup. So what happens is we go, we've got the stream of ions, and they come to what we call the analyzing magnet. And when you fire charged ions at a magnet, they will bend around that magnet, and they will bend at a different angle depending on how much they weigh. 
And so we separate out these three different isotopes depending on their masses, so the carbon-12, the carbon-13, and the carbon-14. And we know where each one of those is going to go because we've got the whole system figured out, or Albert and Jeremy do at least. And so we set up these counters to count the amount of each different atom. So for carbon-12 and carbon-13, of which there's lots, we can use something called a Faraday cup, which effectively measures a current that's generated by those ions. But carbon-14, because there's very, very little of it, it's very rare, there's not enough current generated to measure very well. So that keeps going to another detector, which is a special two-dimensional detector where we measure the momentum of the particles and the energy of the particles, and we actually count every single atom of radiocarbon that ends up there. But they're that rare, you can count them individually. You count them individually. So for a normal sample, we count around 300,000 of them, and then we say that's enough. But for the high-precision work that we're doing, like with these grass samples, we usually go to about 650,000 radiocarbon atoms. Yeah. Which is why it takes a while to go through the system. Exactly. And so we sit there in the system, and we have 40 targets in that wheel, and we go around and we measure each one for two minutes, and then we do that over and over again until we've acquired enough total measurements. And then, of course, the last step is that you take all that data that has been generated and recorded on all these computers and you do a whole lot of um, fairly complicated data analysis to end up with what is the radiocarbon content of the sample. And then from that, by measuring some samples of these grass samples and also measuring some clean air background samples, from that we can calculate how much of the carbon dioxide in the air at the place where the grass grew came from fossil fuel burning. Which bit of the carbon is telling you so that what, I am from a car? Well, what we're seeing is it's sort of a little bit weird because we're seeing the absence of radiocarbon. That's what we're detecting. So we have natural carbon dioxide in the air that has a natural amount of radiocarbon in it. And then when we add fossil fuels, they have no radiocarbon. So the amount of radiocarbon goes down in the atmosphere, and it's that decrease that we're measuring. So it's kind of a little bit... Well, it's a bit counterintuitive. Yeah. yeah. But it does give you a very clear indication of the proportion that comes from fossil fuels. Absolutely. And then there's, there's an, another step which gets really into thinking about atmospheric science and thinking about the weather. What we measure with that is we get a, a concentration, how much fossil fuel carbon dioxide is in the atmosphere at that location. But that's not actually enough because what we really want to know is how much carbon dioxide was emitted from the surface. And so then what we do is we use um, what we call an atmospheric transport model. It's basically a weather model that describes how the air moves to say how much must have been emitted from all the places we know it might be emitting to get to this concentration. And obviously on a windier day, you'll see a lower concentration for the same amount of emission. I think of it as the who farted problem. (laughs) So you're in a a room with a few people and you're like, somebody's let one rip. Your nose is sniffing that. But you don't know, is it the person next to you, just a little fluff, or is it the person on the other side of the room who really let one rip? That's the problem we're trying to solve with these atmospheric transport models, is that what we're observing here, where did it come from, who did it, and how big was it? (laughs) That's a very interesting way of describing it. So what this allows you to do is very clearly go, this proportion of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is coming from fossil fuel burning. Yes, And over time, you are seeing that increase? Yes, we are. The way that we measure it, we're really seeing just the local increase, so the local emissions that are contributing to the increase. So we can see it over the long term looking at the global averages, but what we're really interested in is what's happening locally. So what are the emissions here in Wellington or in Auckland or over New Zealand? 
and how are those changing through time. So what we've been doing in this grass sampling study through lockdown is we, we all know that during the height of lockdown, during level four, there was a really big drop in emissions. People weren't driving their cars. Most industry was still going, but not all. So we know there should be a big drop in emissions. So what we've done is we've measured samples, weekly samples, right through from level four back to level one. And so we're looking at the change in the concentrations that we see through, at the same location through that time. And then we can look at the difference between what was happening in level four and what was happening back in level one and now back in level three or level two or wherever we are, we can see that change again. And you saw really clear changes? We did. So far we've measured a, um, a bunch of them in Wellington and at the sites in central Wellington. We have one on Cambridge Terrace, which is a busy street in central Wellington. We have another right at the off-ramp where State Highway 1 finishes in central Wellington and we have a couple of others on State Highway 2 here in the Hutt Valley. And in all of those we can see a really clear difference. The fossil fuel CO2 is about 80% lower during Level 4 than it is during Level 1 in those locations and that's about what we might expect because those are all really driven by the local traffic and we know that traffic was down 80 to 90 percent in level four and i presume it's bounced up again as the traffic has bounced up again indeed and because we started this experiment during level four we didn't measure the grass before that so what we're doing is looking at what happened at level four level three level two level one and then bouncing back again so the level one when we got back to normal for a while there is kind of our, our standard that we're comparing to. Are you going to keep on measuring grass? We will measure some but we, we can't measure this many sites. We'd need a bit more budget. Yeah. But you've got other systems in place to help you measure over the long term? We have. So um, we have a much larger project called Carbon Watch New Zealand which is a collaboration between us here at GNS Science, folks at Niwa, some folks at University of Waikato and at Manaki Whenua. And what we're doing is trying to look at the whole carbon budget for New Zealand, not just the fossil fuel emissions, but also the natural carbon cycling. And um, the part that we here at GNS are working on is looking at emissions from Auckland. So we're putting in a long-term monitoring network. We'll be measuring these things for the foreseeable future. What about the ocean? We've got a lot of sea around us. We have got a lot of sea around us, and particularly we've got the southern ocean around us. So this other thing that we do with the same radiocarbon measurements is we use it to understand how carbon dioxide gets absorbed into the ocean. And the Southern Ocean is really important because it is the biggest, what we call sink, the place where most, the most amount of carbon dioxide is taken from the atmosphere and it's absorbed into the ocean. And there's some really big questions around how much carbon is being taken up into the Southern Ocean and how it might change in the future. So we're using this exact same technique to investigate that. But you're not collecting grass from the Southern Ocean, so what are you collecting? Well, we're not collecting grass, we've been collecting tree rings. So trees, just like grass, grow by photosynthesising and laying down the carbon that they photosynthesise into their leaves and also into their wood. And they actually have rings through time that, of course, you can count. We all know that. And so we can actually sample the tree rings back through time and get a history back through time of what the radiocarbon content was in the atmosphere. So we've spent a fair bit of time going to all sorts of places around the edges of the Southern Ocean finding trees. We've been right down into the sub-Antarctic islands. There's not too many trees down there. There's one on Campbell Island. Exactly, there's one on Campbell Island. We have measured that. (laughs) And we spent a lot of time in Chile, which is the other place where you can get far south where there are still trees. Pretty much all of the other sub-Antarctic islands have no trees. 
So the time frame that you're looking at in the Southern Ocean work is what, hundreds of years? No, just about the last 30 years. So there's this really big question. We know that the Southern Ocean is the really important place where carbon is absorbed. So of the fossil fuels that we burn, that goes into the atmosphere, but only about half of it stays there. And the other half goes into the land and into the ocean. And there's some questions around exactly how much goes into the land and how much goes into the ocean and what is causing that uptake and how it could change. And so we know that the Southern Ocean is really important for this, and that's because it's really windy in the Southern Ocean, and that drives this big ocean turnover, and that drives exchange of carbon between the atmosphere and the ocean. And so that's what's allowing the Southern Ocean to take up lots and lots of carbon. But there's been this this big question over the last few years that there have been a bunch of different studies, some of which have suggested that as the climate changes and it gets windier over the Southern Ocean, the amount of carbon taken up into the Southern Ocean might be decreasing. And then there's some other studies that say, no, actually it's increasing. And there's been a lot of debate and discussion and questions about what could be driving this. And the point we're at now is that we think that both of those answers are right, but it's changes through time. So some of the early measurements in the 90s did suggest there was a slowing of what this, what we call the Southern Ocean Carbon Sink. And then into the 2000s, it started to increase again, and then maybe it's decreasing again in the last few years. And the best hypothesis that's been done through modelling studies is that this is driven by how much upwelling of deep water is happening in the Southern Ocean. And it turns out that radiocarbon measurements are a really good way to be able to see just that upwelling component of what's going on. Whereas if you measure carbon dioxide itself, you see the upwelling and the sinking and it it's a, harder to separate the pieces. So the radiocarbon measurements in the atmosphere, we're looking for, can we see this change in the amount of upwelling in the radiocarbon gradients in the atmosphere? And indeed, from all of our tree ring measurements, we're seeing this pretty clearly. We're seeing stronger gradients during the 90s, decreasing gradients in the 2000s, and then increasing gradients again recently. And if you follow through all the logic, which is quite a lot of steps of complexity, those changes in gradients are indeed indicative of stronger upwelling in the 90s, which would reduce carbon uptake, decreased upwelling and increased carbon uptake in the 2000s, and then flip back again. So we think we're onto something. And what's that driven by? Is that changes in wind or something? So there's more questions to that. Changes in wind but there may be also some other components. Some of the more complex oceanographic studies suggest the Southern Ocean is not just one big monolith, that different parts of the Southern Ocean can be controlled by different things. Sea ice has a role to play in terms of how the currents move around, salinity, warming, all of those things are part of that story. Thanks, Jocelyn. Jocelyn Turnbull is at GNS Science. And we also heard from Albert Zondervan, who is also at GNS. If you'd like to listen to that story again, just head to our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. You can also find last week's carbon dioxide story there as well, and sign up for our email newsletter if you'd like story links delivered directly to your inbox. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us as a podcast on your favourite podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much everywhere else as well. You can keep in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are RNZ Science, and you can email us at ourchangingworld at rnz.co.nz. Thanks for your company. I'll be back next week, but for now, it's good night from me, Alison Balance, Kia Pai Topo. 
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.